so what we're going to do now, we're going to actually invite Tim Gettert up. Uh, he is a professor at Fresno Pacific Biblical Seminary here in town. Uh, he's one of, he was one of my professors, and I would like to call him a friend these days as we Amen. get to kind of keep moving forward in things. I'm glad that he wasn't just my professor. He is a man that I deeply respect, has been a gift to me. Um, some of you know him because he's been here before. And really what we want to do over these next two Sundays is just press into the topic of misunderstanding Jesus and the Gospels. And so what this is going to look like is Tim is actually going to offer a talk here for about 15 minutes. While he's talking, I want you to pay attention to the things that are coming up, the questions you might have, whether they're new or old, because then right after, we're going to move into just about 15 minutes of question and response time. So I'll walk around with the mic. Uh, we also have a little way to text in some questions, and we just want to have a dialogue with him uh, as we open up. And then after that, we're going to walk through a spiritual practice together uh, and then close out normally with communion reflection and some prayer. Sound good? Okay, can we say welcome, Tim? Like, hello? All that good stuff? Cool. Okay. Good to be here and good to recognize a few faces after the third row. I can't recognize anyone because of all these bright lights, but uh, I'm glad to share with you this morning. I want to refer to two Old Testament prophecies, two different, separate Old Testament prophecies. Maybe we should call them promises that God repeatedly made to the people of God that were ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. The first promise is a promise to send. God would one day send a powerful deliverer, one who would be greater than Moses, one who would be greater than King David, a deliverer that the Old Testament sometimes calls the anointed one. Anointed would be the English term, in Hebrew, that would be Mashiach, from which we get Messiah. In Greek, it would be Christos, from which we get Christ. So Messiah, Christ, anointed, that's all three ways of saying exactly the same thing. God will one day send a Messiah. And when Jesus arrived on the scene, it was the fulfillment of that promise. God had sent the anointed one, fulfilling one of the greatest promises of the Old Testament. It was the promise of a deliverer, a redeemer, a victorious warrior, one who would rescue Israel and ultimately the whole world from its captivities, captivity to the powers of sin and death, captivity to the principalities and powers of this world and of the unseen world. So Jesus came as that Messiah. But nowhere in the Old Testament do we ever get the impression that this Messiah would be anything other than a normal human being. Indeed, especially empowered human being, especially commissioned human, one who was greater than Moses, but still a human, greater than David, but still a human. In other words, the Old Testament never promises a divine Messiah. It promises a human Messiah. And the faithful church has always confessed Jesus is fully human. But I said there would be two promises. The other one was the promise that God would show up, not send someone, but show up in person. Now, we sometimes talk about God's sightings, about special things that happen in our lives, and we become aware that God is active and present with us, and we say, God showed up. 
But what if God really did show up, like there, present, visibly, tangibly, present in person? Well, that's what God promised to do. For example, we read in the prophets, sing for joy and be glad for I am coming and I will dwell in their midst, declares the Lord. Now, when Jesus arrived, nobody knew at first, and only some recognized later, that in Jesus, this second promise was also fulfilled. God had showed up in person. Jesus was the very embodiment of God. Jesus was God. Jesus was God having taken on human flesh. The promise fulfilled that God would live visibly, physically, tangibly among God's people. So Jesus was and is divine, the fulfillment of that second great promise. So two separate promises. Nobody ever combined them in the Old Testament. The first, that God would send a Messiah. And Jesus, the fully human Jesus, fulfills the promise. The second, that God would show up in person. And Jesus, the divine Jesus, fulfills the promise. Now that's the mystery and the paradox at the center of the Christian faith. That Jesus is somehow mysteriously both fully human and fully divine. Not half human, half divine. Not sometimes human, sometimes divine. Fully human, fully divine. Son of man and son of God. The one who restores our relationship with God, but also the God with whom relationships are restored. And we confess that this Jesus is the center of our faith. This human Jesus experiencing all sorts of human limitations as we all do. This divine Jesus, existing from all eternity as the second person of the Trinity, creator of heaven and earth and worthy of all honor and worship as God. This mystery we call the incarnation, God becoming a human person, uniting forever divinity and humanity. So why was it that so many people in Jesus' day didn't accept him in either or both of the ways in which the promises were fulfilled? Why didn't they accept him as the Messiah? Why didn't they recognize him as God in the flesh? Some did, of course, but many didn't. Now, I'm sure there would be many different answers we could give to that question, but I'm going to suggest a few. I think the primary reason they didn't accept Jesus as that was their preconceived notions. They had their own ideas about how each of these promises would be fulfilled and what would happen when they were. In our conversation time, if you wish, I can spend a bit of time recounting some of those wrong expectations the wrong expectations of the Essenes and the Pharisees and the Zealots. But for all the differences between these three groups, they had a lot of things in common. They all assumed the Messiah would show up and support their own personal and often selfish 
agendas, preconceived notions. He would come and support their vision of the world, for after all, their vision was surely God's vision, and anyone who didn't share it wasn't welcome in their world. Their preconceived notions of what a Messiah would do, of what God would be like when God showed up in person, in the end blinded their eyes to the wonderful world-changing good news that Jesus brought that he inaugurated with his teaching and his self-giving life and his self-sacrificial death and resurrection. Their self-serving agendas blinded them to recognizing who God really is and how God wants to invade the world that he loves. So preconceived notions. But secondly, they also had in common the belief that when the coming one or ones would show up, then all their problems would disappear once and for all. They weren't ready for a Messiah who would deal with the root of the problem, the sin and self-centeredness of the human heart, and then begin a long transformation process that would start a movement that would gradually become world-encompassing and is still going on today. No, when the Messiah comes, we're all delivered. When God shows up, life is perfect. But Jesus didn't do it that way. They actually also had a third thing in common. They all apparently believed that these two promises would be fulfilled in a particular order. First, a human Messiah would show up and prepare for the arrival of God. And then when everything was ready, God would show up. Apparently, it never occurred to anybody that the Messiah that God would send and the arriving presence of God himself would be the same person, the fully human, fully divine Jesus. So again, preconceived notions got in the way. They weren't prepared to receive Jesus just as he was, just as he came, and allow Jesus to reshape their expectations. So when Jesus shows up as the fulfillment of both of God's great promises and begins to turn the world and its values upside down, one encounter at a time, one miracle at a time, one parable at a time, well, that just didn't fit with their expectations and they just didn't connect the dots. In Jesus, all God's promises are fulfilled. Ultimately, just not all at once. The great restoration project was inaugurated, but it is still ongoing, and one day it will be completed by this same Jesus, this human divine Jesus, when he comes again to finish the Messiah's work of deliverance and to live physically tangibly, visibly among the redeemed people of God forever. That is the mystery of who Jesus is. So what does all that have to do with you and me? A lot of things. And we want to converse together about some of them, but to prime the pump, just a couple of suggestions. First, be careful about preconceived notions. 
Let Jesus be who Jesus will be. If we think we have Jesus all figured out, we just might miss the times when he shows up. Never give up hope. Even when the fulfillment comes more slowly than we wish, God plays the long game. God prepared millennia for Jesus' arrival. And now, as it has turned out, God has been working out the implications of that coming for two millennia more. It's a long game, but God's plan is straining toward its fulfillment. And thirdly, be encouraged and challenged by Paul's word to the Romans when he says, our salvation is nearer than when we first believed, or to read it in another translation with its context. Make sure that you don't get so absorbed and exhausted in taking care of all your day-by-day -day obligations that you lose track of the time and doze off, oblivious to God. The night is about over. The dawn is about to break. Be up and awake to what God is doing. God is putting the finishing touches on the salvation work he began when we first believed. Thank you, Tim. Um, so what I want to do is just trying to, we want to stay connected into this space, just coming right off of that talk. And uh, there's going to be a slide here. Um, if at any point, uh, what I'm going to do, I'm going to walk around with the microphone. And so you can raise your hand, I'll come to you, I'll hold the mic in front of you, and you can ask a question. Um, and then also, if you do just pull out your phone and you text the word Midtown to 94000, in case you haven't done this before, you'll get a little response. And then you can just type a question right into that chat and I'll receive it on my phone. And then I can look through some of the ones that come in. I probably won't get to all of them if there are multiple, but, uh, but at least I can get to one or two of those. So um, sound good? So we're gonna participate in a little bit of question and response here with Tim. Um, and I'll just get us started. I, I mean, just the idea of preconceived notions. Uh, you get the benefit of working with a number of different people across the age spectrum, different backgrounds, worldviews, cultures, uh, in regard to trying to understand the teachings, the life of Jesus, and even others. Um, what's one of the hardest things to overcome the preconceived notion? What's, the, what's so hard about us overcoming some of the preconceived notions we come with? I think my first answer would be we try to go straight from the text to me. We read the words on the page and whatever they mean to me from my perspective, my culture, my social standing, my ethnicity, my biases, my questions. Here's a text. What does it say to me? And even though it seems the long way around or the harder way around, I think our questions and our needs will be met much more fully if we take the other way around. What was Jesus saying and doing and representing to his world in his context as reflected in a 2000 year old text in other words what did the text actually want to say first and foremost to those readers and then how does that connect to my life it feels like it's 
something's going to be lost in translation, but I think actually it's the other way around. A whole lot more is found in looking more closely at what the texts were designed to do and to say. And then when it connects with our lives, we see a depth and a richness and layers of meaning. And then we can also compare with each other what we see and we can help each other learn. And the community becomes much more a learning community that understands. I don't wanna say the first century Jesus is the real one and ours isn't. It's the same Jesus yesterday, today, and forever, but it's a Jesus that we apply more faithfully to our world if we first pay attention to where Jesus was in this plan of God throughout the ages. That, that would be my first answer. We're, our applications come too quickly. We want to get there, but we don't want to bypass all the important things that happen along the way. So in line with that, I'm going to read from a text and then I'll look for a hand. Um, but yeah, with that, how do we actually foster intellectual humility in our faith? It sounds like that even right there takes humility. Yeah, I spent a whole lifetime trying to gain some of that. Uh, I, I think when I was the age of most of you and a little younger even than most of you, I pretty much thought it was my job to have Jesus completely figured out so that I could spend the rest of my life convincing everybody else that that's what Jesus is really like. And uh, the learning posture must go on and on and on and learn from diverse people and learn through diverse experiences and learn by going back to the texts. If we don't have any humility, it's, it's, a, it's a sin problem. It's a personal problem. Uh, to gain that humility, we need to be open to others. We need to be open to the spirit of God. We need to just recognize that we haven't got it all figured out. Next week, we'll talk about the Gospels, but even the diverse presentations of, the of, the, of Jesus in the four Gospels should be blazingly obvious to us that there isn't just one way to see Jesus. There's, there's multiple perspectives to who Jesus is that we need to keep on learning from. So I, I don't claim to have learned what I need in that field, but I sure want to keep on trying. That's good. Thank you, Tim. Uh, one hand. Do we have one? Anybody want to ask a question to the mic? Good morning. Um, so the concept of this prophecy from the Old Testament being separated from Jesus or the Messiah coming as this fulfillment of God and man being separated. Mm -hmm. I'm just curious of what some of the Old Testament scriptures are to show that separation. Yeah. Okay, so for example, a bit of a puzzling text in Malachi, right at the end of Malachi, it's the last book of the Old Testament, the way we order the books, uh, talks about the, the messenger in the order of Elijah is going to show up before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And that was understood as a preparer comes and then God shows up. So how is this fulfilled? Well, in Jesus' ministry, it's very clear that John the Baptist is the preparer. And then Jesus shows up, except Jesus is also the preparer for the final coming of God. And what they never really saw was that there's this sort of timeline that they imagine. You know, there's this, this world in which we now live, and then there's the one great event that separates it from eternity, and then everything is like all or nothing, once and for all. That sort of attitude comes from the fact that there's just one great dividing line between this world and the age to come. But when Jesus came, it did this. 
It's this old age of sin and death still kept right on being real and present, but the new age, I should try to do it this way because it's pointing that way, uh, is already inaugurated by Jesus. So on the one hand, Jesus, John prepares for Jesus. On the other hand, Jesus prepares for the final coming of God, the end of the age. So the multiple prophecies they weren't fulfilled in a really straightforward, linear way. They were sort of partly fulfilled, and then there was yet more to come. Uh, I, don't know, I don't want to take too much time, but let me, let me tell you about what I thought was the very worst Sunday school class I ever attended. Uh, I was visiting speaker in a church, and in those days, I still made the mistake of going to Sunday school when I was a visiting speaker in a different church. And I've learned my lesson because then they all think that you're the one who's supposed to figure out whether they're giving the truth or not the truth and all that kind of stuff. And I just gave up on it. I kept my mouth shut through that Sunday school class, but it went basically like this. I'll oversimplify it. The Pharisees in Jesus' day didn't recognize Jesus. And the reason was they didn't figure out all the Old Testament prophecies. If only they had read their Old Testament carefully, they would have seen that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem and Jesus would do this and Jesus would be born of a virgin and Jesus would do this and this and this and this and this and this. I mean, the whole life of Jesus is laid out so clearly in the Old Testament, they just never must have, must never have read their Old Testament properly. If only they had, they would have recognized that he was the one. Therefore, Let's spend the rest of our lives reading the book of Revelation so that we don't make the same mistake. And now we will know what's going to happen first and the next and next and next and next and next. And the river Euphrates will dry up and then the demons will come out of the desert. And then the, 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 the grasshoppers from China are going to invade the United States. And, like, and we, we get all these so that we don't miss it. And I'm sitting there thinking the Pharisees had a lot of mistakes, but one of them wasn't that they didn't read their Old Testament. They knew that thing from memory better than this Sunday school teacher did by far. Like, we don't recognize Jesus by figuring out in advance everything that is going to happen when he shows up. And then he shows up, oh yeah, look at that, it's blazing obvious. It's way different than that. It's what is God up to? What is God promising is going to happen? And this person is claiming to be that fulfillment. Well, let's see what he offers. And that will allow us to rethink everything we ever thought we knew. And I think that it's totally relevant to our lives. If you're in a difficult situation, you don't know which way to turn and you say, Jesus, please show up. Jesus will show up, but please don't say, because I know that when you show up, then this is gonna happen and this is gonna happen and you're gonna do this to this person and you're gonna tell this person to change their mind about this. And like, if we figure out how Jesus is gonna show up, then he might show up and we won't notice it because his agenda just might be a little bit different than our preconceived notions. So I think that's, that was so relevant to what was going on in the, in the first coming of Jesus. And I mean, I'm not really afraid that Jesus' second coming will happen and we won't notice because we have wrong ideas. I think it's going to be a, a coming that we will all recognize, but I'm pretty sure it's not going to be like anybody's figured out in advance. How do we make sense of the inherent subjectivity of hermeneutics? And you can explain that. If we all have our own lens of reading scripture, how can we arrive on and agree about scriptural truth? Okay, first of all, I'm not optimistic that we will all arrive fully in agreement on scriptural truth. I think that's, I had a professor once who said, when everybody agrees, then I start getting nervous because then there's nobody challenging anymore. So I think, I think it's a constant learning and, and, and will probably be a continuous learning and growing and changing forever and ever. 
till Jesus comes back. But a degree of common understanding of who Jesus is isn't going to happen because everybody has their own private vision and then somebody negotiates the common points. It's going to be because we're in dialogue with each other and we're learning from each other and we're realizing that my vision isn't the whole vision. And sometimes it'll even happen because I have a vision and it just doesn't work out in life. And the spirit needs to open my eyes to say, yeah, you didn't have the whole thing figured out. Uh, so I, I, think, I think there's multiple factors that can lead for example, a body of believers like this to a common understanding of who Jesus is and the mission of Jesus and the implications for our life together and for our mission in the city. But it's going to be an ongoing learning process in which there'll be give and take and push and pull and learning and changing. And uh, so I'm, I'm not optimistic that it'll, but, but the, I think that part of the question was how do we overcome our subjectivity? Well, part of it is by listening to somebody else's subjectivity and not just our own. Uh, somebody said, objectivity is agreement of everybody in the room. And then we just control who's in the room and, uh, and now we've, we're objective because we all agree. Well, yeah, let's open the doors, open the windows, and then we won't all agree anymore. And then we recognize that it's not objectivity. It's each person's own perceptions, but we learn from them and we learn from each other's. <laughs> And I'll keep an eye out for, I'll ask a question. I'll keep an eye out for a hand. Um, I'm here this morning and I might be trying to figure out Jesus. Um, maybe I've begun to figure out Jesus and I've said yes to following him. And maybe it's just newer to me or I'm here and I have friends that I am talking about with Jesus and they're trying to figure things out. How much does it matter for people to fully understand who Jesus is? in order that they can follow him? We begin following with minimal understanding. It, it depends on acceptance of the offer that Jesus makes to us. Uh, that was illustrated clearly in the call of the disciples. They knew almost nothing about Jesus, except that he was offering them something that they wanted. Uh, so we can begin the journey, but this, the journey will only be sustained if along the way we have some kind of confidence that we're building our lives on something that stands up, that holds up to scrutiny. And, uh, and there's many different ways that people have tried to shore up the basis for belief. And some arguments are rational and some are subjective and some are historical and some are textual and some, there's lots of ways that people do it. I, I personally am, unhappy with anyone proposing that there's only one right way to defend the faith. The right way to defend the faith is to prove this, and this depends on this, and this depends on this, and this implies this, and this implies this. And we build this logical structure which says, therefore, Jesus really was the Son of God, and therefore I should give my life to him. The problem with this logical structure is if you wiggle one of the pieces, the whole thing collapses. Like it's like a house of cards. All right gives the impression that it is at least. I think there's multiple factors that increase my confidence that I've invested my life for something real and true. Uh, it's a compelling story worth believing. That's not enough, but that's a starting point. Uh, there's a popular song these days. Uh, somebody says, I believe in miracles because they're just too good to not be true. Well, too good to not be true doesn't prove they're true, does it? It just means that that's how I'm perceiving it. But that's a starting point. I, I experience something that I attribute to the, the work of God in my life because my fellow travelers on this journey of life are experiencing the same thing and helping me understand it. I, I just think there's, 
I mean, there's whole books written on the evidential value of religious experience. And then there's another book written on the proof that Jesus really did rise from the dead. And then there's an arc, like, there's many different ways of getting at it. And my life is more solidly grounded if I learn from them all and allow them to support each other. And ultimately I ask, is there any other way to live that I think offers me more than the gospel of Jesus Christ does the way I've experienced it among the people of God? So I, I don't, I don't think it's going to satisfy the person who thinks that the only right answer is logical. It might not satisfy the person who thinks the only right answer is subjective. But maybe we're better off to, to be that community where we help one another believe by sharing the diverse ways that each of us is persuaded that this isn't just a myth. And by the way, there's a number of questions I'm not going to get to here. Thank you for asking good questions. And um, even just the, the ability to be in a space to then draw whatever's drawing up in you that you have questions about, I think that's already a win, even if we're not going to hear Tim respond to it. Uh, so I'm going, to, I'm going to end this, I think, with this one. Um, how does socioeconomic status impact people's ability to learn about the first century context of scriptures? And what does that mean for them? Okay, uh, Joel Green wrote a commentary on the Gospel of Luke. Fabulous commentary, it's about 20 years older already. It's still the best one around. Joel Green was living in um, Oakland at the time. He had an office window. When he looked out of his office window, he saw the homeless people on the street. That was the location of his commentary writing. He writes a commentary on Luke, which of all four Gospels, is clearly the one that most transparently sticks up for the outsider. Recovery of sight for the blind, deliverance for the captives, hope for the hopeless, inclusion for the ones on the margins. And he says, I did all my academic work. I would go to the library, I would read about Luke, and I'd read the history of the first century, and I'd read the culture of the first century. But then I looked out my window and said, what does all of this have to do with the world in which I live? And he wrote a fabulous commentary precisely because his social location intersected with the real world in which he found himself. I used that commentary in teaching the Gospel of Luke. And one year I assigned to the students, you need to do some sort of a ministry project, something that gets you in touch with the real world that takes this powerful radical message of Luke into the real world. And one of my students said, okay, I do a lot of traveling on Fresno City buses. I'm gonna just decide that from now on, I'm gonna read the Gospel of Luke through every time I'm sitting on a city bus. I, I haven't traveled much on city buses, maybe that's to my shame, but apparently when you travel on city buses, you don't meet exactly the same clientele as when you check in first class at the airport. So you're in touch with a different segment of society. And, uh, and he said it was, it was life transforming. So our social location is what it is, but we have to find ways to transcend it by our interactions uh, and so on, because otherwise we'll do the academic study and it will blind us to the realities of the real world around us. I, I, I thought it was going to go towards the answer to the question. I'm not sure if it did. But, That's right. Well, and yeah. maybe just to wrap it, just to kind of cap it off, if you can just hone in on that piece, what does it mean maybe for someone who is in a different or lower socioeconomic status? the work of understanding a historical context and reading and literacy and I, just so many different things. What's that mean in regard to understanding who Jesus is? I think a person who desperately needs precisely what the, the social aspects of the gospel offer, 
I hope their eyes are just wide open to look around for some Christian community somewhere that embodies that, that where they can come and find the acceptance that the gospel purports to offer them and finds people willing to, as Jesus said, take the lower seat at the table and make room for the, the outsiders and so on. Uh, what does it mean for the, the less privileged? They need to be able to find a community that welcomes them. So the challenge, of course, for those of us who are in Christian communities is to be that kind of community. Can we thank Tim? Thank you. Thank you, thank you. So what we're going to do now, um, I'm going to give some instruction. Andrew is going to pass out and ask for some help. He's tapping Denise. Denise is going to help also. Um, I'm going to ask them to pass these sheets out face down, and I'm going to ask you to keep them face down until we enter into this practice, uh, just so we can kind of prepare for it. You'll naturally just start reading what's on the paper. Um, so just keep it face down, and then I'll ask us all to turn it over at the same time. But what I want us to do is actually enter into, hopefully, a practice that we can take on uh, that is inviting God to actually uncover some of the things that are inside of us in regard to how we understand who God is uh, and expose them so that we know a little bit more about what actually, maybe these preconceived notions that we could have that we don't know are there. Uh, Scott McKnight is a, a theologian and an author, and he's been teaching for years. And at the end of one of his classes, he always hands out a survey to the students. And the first 25 questions are about them describing Jesus. Uh, some of the attributes of him, his characteristics, his personality traits. And they kind of go through and check, out bo check off boxes of who they think Jesus is. And then the second half of the survey is actually questions about themselves, worded differently, but they're describing who they are, the way they see things, the way they feel things, their temperaments, their personalities. And he says almost every single time, very rarely, does anybody not describe Jesus the same way they describe themselves. That they are marking off, here who I think, here's who I think Jesus is. Here's who I think I am. And they're almost exactly the same. What is that? Is it, is it that we've been made in God's image or is the temptation for us to make God in our image? I know which one's more comfortable. I know which one I would probably prefer because then it keeps me at the center of the world and, and life can kind of stay in control and I don't have to do the work. But I just, if we sit with that this morning, how limiting is that? How much am I missing out on of the story that God is inviting me into if I simply over and over again just see God the way I think I see myself? And so for thousands of years, the scriptures have been a way to look into a mirror that's held up in front of us to draw out the things that could be barriers between who God wants us to be, who he is, and who he's calling us to be. And so what we're going to do is just have a few passages in front of us here in a second. What I want you to do is we're just going to read through them on your own, on your sheet of paper, and you're going to narrow down to one after you read each one. And you're simply just going to kind of then from here on, I'm going to ask a few guiding questions. Um, I'm actually going to invite at least one or two of you up just to strum in, in the back. Um, and then we'll move into a song. But just some nice, easy, guided questions that is inviting in the Spirit of God to speak to you while reading these verses. And we'll see if we can get nudged just a little bit. Okay.
So in a few seconds, I'm gonna ask you to flip over your paper and you're simply just gonna spend a minute just reading. Then I'll walk us through an exercise. I just wanna pause and just invite God specifically into this. So Father, yeah, we just pause maybe the thinking that we've been doing or nuancing or trying to figure anything out. Um, yeah, may we just slow down and may we just be willing to be open to how you want to speak to us that is most often different than how we already think. That's different than how we already view the world. That is different than how we already view people. I think it's in that that we can best actually join you in the redemption and the reconciliation of the world which you love dearly. So may you just come and speak to us in this time through your word. So why don't we go ahead and turn over our papers, take a moment to read through. And wherever you're at reading that, I'd encourage you to read through one more time. Maybe a little bit slower. This time asking God to highlight which passage is sticking out to you. Even if you don't know why. And now we just want to focus on the one passage, doing your best to push aside the other two. Reading just that passage slowly, what words or phrases are grabbing you?
and now, asking God prayerfully, what about that passage makes you uncomfortable or is different than your natural way of understanding who Jesus is? And why might that be? And lastly, sometimes the hardest, what might God be inviting you to do from here that feels against your natural way of thinking or behaving, yet it would be a benefit or to the benefit of someone else? stand together if you're able so as we close out our time together uh, I pray that God spoke to you this morning I do Um, prayed all week and I also want to say sometimes we don't feel like he did and that's okay Oftentimes, this this way of going about the scriptures, the way of of trying to give it our best shot at understanding who Jesus is and what he's up to and who he's inviting us into, it's slow. It's a process. It takes time. And reading the scriptures in this way, just having questions that help us think outside of maybe the way that we would, can oftentimes be like sitting down with someone different than us and hearing their story. So I pray at minimum, that you'd be encouraged this morning to press into the misunderstanding of Jesus. Because if we don't actually take the attempts to misunderstand, I don't know if we actually could ever understand. May gracious meet us in that journey. So we're gonna, we're gonna sing another song. Uh, tables of communion are open on both sides. And I just wanna encourage you during this time uh, for about a handful more minutes, um, go and receive communion. And maybe maybe this morning is the posture of Jesus said to do this in remembrance of him, to take the cracker which represents his broken body, to take the wine or the juice that represents the blood that was shed for us, all in the 
the pursuit of us, motivated by his love. May, may today actually be a moment to say, Jesus, I come before this, doing this, not actually knowing why, not knowing how, not knowing who. May you show me. May I be open to you showing me. May I create the space for you to show me. So may, may it actually be a morning of confession to say, I don't understand, help me. And the things I do understand, may you help me to see them beyond my understanding. So there's an invitation there. I'll come back up in a few minutes and invite us into prayer as we close out.